In Mexico, it's a common phrase. It's not said, pardon me, perdóname, something like that. I could order tacos and burritos very well, limited on speaking Spanish with any kind of authenticity. But it was used any time you needed to make passage between people interrupting activities that may have been industrial. That was the common phrase that you heard in Spanish. Pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. It could happen both when there was an incident and it could happen as well when there was simply the need to be moving through something, passing someone by. And we always understood that you would yield. You would both consent, well, of course, or you would repent. Sorry. <laughs> There's a word for that too. In today's teaching, Jesus speaks of an issue that is really a manifestation of the heart of the men that he is correcting who have been dogging him, following him, indicting him, waiting for opportunity to deal with him in a manner that we would say is malicious and ultimately for the demise of Jesus in his ministry as the Son of God, as the Son of David, the Savior of the world, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, how could he be in this way disrespected? But he gives us an indication in this that there is severity at the conclusion of what we call the patience of God through the dispensation of grace, there is consequence. And he speaks that to the heart of these men who have issues in their heart. In one way, they appear pious, or if you would, highly spiritual. They're holding an office that would suggest that. In the office that they hold, though, they are so distant from connecting people with God as God's heart was. It was an allowable opportunity to have a priesthood. It was authorized by God for a people whom God saw and decided to manifest his grace and mercy to, a peculiar people. And in the process of what we know happened, which is religiosity, rather than high and true integrated spirituality, it became corrupt because of men's hearts, issues within their hearts that had never been dealt with. The sacrificial system obviously would prove itself ineffective for indefinitely dealing with sin. God made provision through a sacrificial system that the Jewish people practiced through the priesthood that there could be a pardon. It would be a seasonal pardon as there would be representatives, and in particular a high priest who would go in once a year on Yom Kippur and give the salutation to the people that their sins were forgiven. A complex system of both sacrifice and faith, but it was what God both required 
and had expectation of its faithful continuance. Jesus obviously, in the tenure of his ministry, confronts a corrupt ministry. And he comes authentically as God to earth, and his purpose is to fulfill the sacrifice that would be offered by God through him as God, the Son, the part of the lineage of David that was promised to David, that in his coming, he would fulfill the law and the prophets. He would be the one that by his authority and ultimately in the giving of his life would be able to declare to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so in principle right now, you see people whose sole motivation is to both ignore the scriptures that were, in fact, their reality. They studied the scriptures. There was really nothing about the scriptures that they could be ensnared and not having an answer for, except the one thing, how Messiah came. But even that is extraordinary because the scriptures tell us how he would come. Isaiah 700 years before would declare that he would come through a virgin, a woman. And ultimately, he did. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophets spoke about how God would gather his people, unite his people, comfort his people. And that was to be a word that was to be both taught and lived out rather than lied about, which they did. The people who gladly received the word of God responded to Jesus in multitudes. Pretty incredible. We were on the beach yesterday. We had a special opportunity for Zachary to take, as you remember what we had at Galesville, a, it's called a chair tracker or trackster or trekker. So the simplicity of that, it's a track chair, but it's got tank treads on it. And so we went up there at 10 o'clock yesterday, I think, and we got in the, well, he got in the chair, and just as he did in Galesville, just took on the beach. But what we did see, which we didn't expect, was a paparazzi. There were people that, like Zach, through an accident, were constrained to wheelchairs, and this was an opportunity for them to be liberated. This was the second day in which handicapped people constrained to a chair could get into this very extraordinary specialized chair and hit the beach and take on the sand and forge the river there. And Zachary did all of those things, and I think he even moved a big giant stump too just to say, you think that's going to stop me? What we didn't know was that in coordination with that event, he would be a, if you would, filmed a guest speaker. He had to sign papers, waivers, saying, you know, if his face goes on the box of Cheerios, that, you know, they basically own him. Well, God owns him. But it was funny. He had to fill out these forms and, and consent to it. And then when we had made our larger run, they had cameras. They had, I believe, a microphone that clipped onto him. 
they brought him in they had shading that real fancy kind of stuff i mean it was it was big time filming they were interested in what this young man had to say they were also interested in what he would be able to endorse as far as that ministry but i know that the first thing that was out of his mouth was a testimony concerning the lord and that was exciting the waves were crashing seagulls were flying kids and families from the backside would move in somewhat semi-mass moving to their chosen areas of destination but the point that I'm making right now is that Zachary in a little moment of time came as one to represent the heart of the Father in terms of the sacrifice that he also remembers making. The story replays itself. The event was accounted for. But I remember this which was uniquely different than what Jesus experienced. Big smiles handshakes, nods, and then we went about the rest of our day, returning the equipment, back in the chair, back in the car, back home, and just feeling really good about, if you would, the pat on the back that was received. Jesus didn't get that from those whom he represented. If there was any one that deserved to be acknowledged and recognized by those whom he ultimately came to serve and whose very purpose on the earth was to turn issues into ultimately humility and repentance. He was ignored except by those who knew this man is different. This man is God, Jesus. God with us. So we pick up this text right now where we'll understand a bit more on what is important for us to be praying through as well as to be ready for. In verse 31 of chapter 12, Jesus, in essence, is communicating he said previously in the close of our study on Thursday, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What you do need to know is that verse 24 clarifies centrally who this is directed towards. The Pharisees heard it. They said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. Jesus had performed a miracle of freeing basically the demonic entity that had taken over this man's life. He was unable to see and he was unable to speak. And the Lord took him on and gave him victory over his infirmity. The Lord gives victory over our infirmities. So he moves now in this address of in what we have seen as a fairly popular political phrase right now, the red line. 
that's crossing the red line. And the title on last week's teaching on Thursday was that there is a line that we must cross. And we must cross that line ultimately by the cross. Jesus continues in this indictment, which is really to them and not to the multitudes who have received him, but those who are challenging the work of God through him. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So when the word blasphemy was used, it was basically a charge that required, as a consequence, death. It was denying God or flagrantly disobeying God. It was treating God as a lesser and exalting another as a better. When the name of the Lord was taken in vain, there would be a death sentence that could be imposed upon one that would do that. And to the Jewish people at that time who would be in charge of corrections, that was the requirement. Blasphemy of the Spirit has some very interesting ramifications to it. Because it's something actually more than taking the name of the Lord's personage, if you would, into disrespect. It has with it a greater notation, which is simply not taking the name of the Lord seriously at all. It would be an abject rejection of God and the standards of righteousness and of holiness. It was one that would actually hurt the heart of a true spiritual person to have the voicing of such disrespect, disregard to a God who was infinitely so good and to be revered, actually to the Middle Eastern mindset to be feared even though what we know is Jesus represented the heart of his Father as one not simply to fear with respect, but to be endeared to with great confidence in his love and his provision. Jesus spoke of that. He represented God in a way in which the institution of Judaism failed. Because of the positions that these men occupied, it was more important than the position that God occupied. I want to be able to anchor us in a passage that's familiar. It's a common passage, but I'm going to direct your eyes there. If you'd cruise over to John chapter 3 with me, you know that from that chapter, Jesus would say to a person named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, but one who had a craving to understand this man who he could not deny was extraordinary and one whose emotions and intellect was teased beyond satisfaction of simply what others thought he had to know 
and he pursued Jesus in the night hours to intercept him and to ultimately have the answers of his soul satisfied. But in John chapter 3, verse 34 is where I'm going to pick it up. And I'll conclude there in this chapter, verse 36. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Jesus had been testified about by the multitudes alone. Let's pass from the popularity. What about from the people that had been healed, that could not be denied, that were dancing and leaping and listening and talking, that were basically turned into evangelists by the reckoning of what at one time had wrecked their bodies in infirmity, they were free and liberated. What about them? See, those things couldn't be denied. Even if the Pharisees endeavored to excuse it, even if they tried to blame Jesus, that this was being done by the Spirit, or by Beelzebub, a lengthier terminology of what prophets of days of old would have simply called Baal. Beelzebub, Baal. It was representative of what the Philistines had worshipped, which basically was Satan. An image, a persona of the devil. And this is what they were saying. Son of God, son of David, son of man, you're only doing this because you're the son of a devil. You were able to do this because of the empowerment of Beelzebub. Jesus on Thursdays, you remember, cited this. If so, then what do you say about your sons who are casting out demons in the name of God? If you say that about me, what do you say about your sons who are doing so in the name of God? And I am God. And so you're obviously both confused and you're ultimately now in the position of blaspheming the Spirit of God. Certification. We love our certifications because it tells people that we've worked skillfully, intellectually, scholastically, industrially to be one that can with experience, handle your problems, satisfy your needs. It is important. And Jesus is saying that this importance actually comes spiritually by bearing testimony. When we bear testimony, it certifies us as one who identifies with God as true. And all he does, all he says, every manner by which he walks, everything that he laid his life down for is certified in our belief and testimony. It continues, he who has received this testimony is certified that God is true. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God does not give the Spirit by measure. 
In this text, he's emphasizing really the significant component part of what we know as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the work of the Spirit of God. The Jews would have understood the term spirit as ruach. The Greeks would translate it as pneuma, and it meant literally the breath of God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, when in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the waters. The Spirit was from the beginning a part of all creation, whom Jesus authored by his own hands and his own word. It can get complicated when we ask ourselves, well, who did what? Which one of the three did that? Is three and one. They are one in all that they do, distinct in the ministries that they perform. But we know that every one must point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does, God the Father does, the Son within whom he is well pleased. So we know that this now is giving us a real clarity of what Jesus is speaking about. The mystery of the empowerment of God through the Holy Spirit, the breath of God being given to man through the agency of procreation. Babies are breathing within the womb through that wonderful, complex system of organs and ultimately the umbilical cord. My son, Spencer, was breathing in the womb. Maybe it's why many of us have such a fascination with skin diving, scuba diving, to be attached once again to an oxygen tank, diving, swimming, But somehow in the delivery, that umbilical cord got turned around in his neck. And so when he was delivered, he was different in color than babies normally being delivered. And there was silence in that staging room of birthing a son. Quietness that you could hear a pin drop. We saw them work with diligence and skill, not telling us one thing about what had happened, but we knew that something was being done to save him. And so the umbilical cord would be freed. They would massage his body. We saw a bit of oxygen being administered, and Spencer ultimately returned to the color that the Spirit of God had given to him, the breath of God. I use it as an illustration because this is what we are, in essence, talking about. This breath of God is vital for all of us. When it extinguishes by reason of what we know is going to happen, a demise of this body system, that spirit ultimately that gave us life also translates us into the presence of God. We're eternal creatures. And so we have to make a decision that is eternal. And if it is not eternal to God in the Spirit, to have residency with Him in heaven, 
then it will become infernal. It will be a destiny that ultimately subjects a person to demise perpetually. And there's nothing that can be changed or altered about it. It continues with regard to the certification that we are able to have that compliment from God and being a testimony of truth. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit, and it says this, by measure, does not give the Spirit by measure. In other words, no one will have an excuse. Well, you only gave me just a small portion of the Spirit. I didn't have what it needed to get through life. It was insufficient. My measure, it is not given. In other words, it's overflowing. No one will get to heaven by having more than another person had available, period. He's gracious and he's abounding in his grace. And in what the work of the Spirit is to do, both in the giftings and talents that are given to us, but ultimately, in satisfying the life that is to be lived on earth. A hard tenure, agreed. But what blessings await us in being agreeable to the journey that we're on. Here's the important part as well. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Verse 36, familiar to you. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God has been in this dispensational season of grace suspended. But I want to make some clarity on language here. The first regarding the title, which is pardon me, is important in isolating that word pardon. A definition for you is simply this, a remission of the legal consequence of an offense or conviction. Very appropriate to say that with the offense comes the conviction. And with this, it is as a pardon, a remission of the legal consequence. When presidents and their executive authority are terminating their years of that position in office, they have been given lawful authority to pardon. And some of us would say, you've got to be kidding me. How could they pardon that person? How could they pardon those people? And some of us would say, perhaps, how could God do that? They deserve where they're at. They deserve what they're going to get. But isn't it interesting that if that were us in that particular levy of blame, or in fact, the one that inherited that consequence, I'll bet you we would appreciate a pardon. We would appreciate the pardon. See, the pardon is there. God has established that. And he did it through this one key word that he uttered. Jesus on the cross, had he not uttered this word, no pardon would be possible. He said this in his agony. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The central word 
of what Jesus pronounced on the cross and obviously prior in our study in Matthew right now to that event was forgiven. That's what he was intending to do. He was the ambassador from heaven who by his life in being God and fully man would be able to say with certification, they shall be forgiven. I will satisfy this course. They will be pardoned on account of the forgiveness that I've asked my father to render. Notice this. I found this to be interesting. Forgive. It says basically sorry or a sorrowful feeling of anger or resentment for offense. A sorrowful feeling or anger or resentment for offense. God resented the consequence of sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiveness had to take place before ultimately the pardon could be rendered. They were knitted together legally. One could not be discharged until the other had been satisfied. That's why it's really important in our relationship as spiritual people to render forgiveness. Because if one is not able to ask another for forgiveness, and if that recipient of hearing that plea will not render forgiveness, then the pardon is impossible to come. One of the best things that we can do as an offender is say, please forgive me. And one of the necessary things to do like God is to say, I forgive you. For when that transaction takes place, the pardon then is lawfully acceptable. What happens? Condemnation is removed. The burden of being guilty you're freed from. That's why these two are so important. The Pharisees right now were unable that we know of. Nicodemus perhaps the closest to coming to that point of asking for forgiveness of his ignorance and having yet that special intimate time with Jesus that ultimately would make him a bold disciple when Jesus satisfied, even in the encounter that he had with Nicodemus, his death in which Nicodemus could say, I owe him my service. I will pair up with Joseph of Arimathea. I will tend the Lord. If it costs me my place as a Pharisee, my place is with Jesus as Lord. But I found that to be interesting. So let's look at this word that we did find in the scriptures when we were peeking back at John 3, 34 and 36. When he says that the wrath of God abides on him, and when we find that it means that it is intolerable, the behavior 
of one towards someone. There's a second implication here, this word of abiding. And it means continue without feeling or being lost. To continue without feeling or being lost. We have a world that has no feelings for God. But the consequence ultimately is that the wrath of God abides upon them. God has satisfied his wrath in peace that he has granted through Jesus Christ. So it's not like he's up there wringing his hands waiting to take the next person out. What he wants earnestly is to take the next person up. His plan will be satisfied in continuing without repentance. He would that none should perish, but he will ultimately satisfy the plan that he is responsible for enacting, which as a judiciary requires him to render a penalty that is either going to lead to the consequence of death eternally or to the blessings of life eternally. That's what he does. That's what must be for God, the ultimate conclusion, saved by my son, by your confession. You've chosen hell. You cannot be saved. Ruach, Numa, the breath and life of God in you has been rejected. The conviction of your heart has ultimately been disobeyed, demise eternally. We find that anchored in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. We're going to turn there really quick. Luke 19, or excuse me, Luke 16. Picking it up to verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Basically, you just need to know the carnal man without spirit. Life being given to him by God, breathed into his nostrils at birth, in the womb, but no longer living for God. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. One's carried, the other's buried. For the carnal man... For the individual that lives for self, rejecting God, no longer able to both see the things of God, hear the word of God, speak the truth of God, it would indicate there's one destination. It's the grave. It's the holding tank, if you would. The believer is promised to be absent from, if you would, this body is to be present with the Lord. For the one who ultimately has rejected God, living sumptuously, carnally, ignorantly, or arrogantly, 
knowing deep the conviction, the evidence of things both at one time seen, heard, and spoken of has said, not going to change, not going to care. My life is mine and I will live it out to the grave. Well, welcome to your home. But that's not going to be my home. The Lord has prepared a mansion for those who love him and who follow him. But the rich man is buried and Lazarus is carried. Lazarus represents you and I, who the dogs have licked at the sores of our body, the rejection, the neediness. And to those whom culturally, demonically, have contributed nothing to the work of God, there's no contribution that God can give them except the sentence without pardon, condemnation you've received. Being in torment, it says in verse 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So there's a mystery here. But the Old Testament saints went to be in an area called Abraham's bosom, what we would liken to a heavenly splendor, waiting ultimately for the Lord to satisfy what he would do and free them, bringing them into heaven upon his sacrifice. And this man, seeing the comfort that was being received, cries out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Hades likened to, in this compartmental description, is hell. It's a place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus, in this gospel account, is indeed purposed to both give his life while walking to those who cannot walk, cannot see, cannot speak, condemned literally to death without responding to the Lord. And he will go ultimately to the cross, to the grave. He will go to Hades. He will give his final sermon, take liberty in releasing those that in Abraham's bosom have awaited their salvation. Freed from the grave, he was, rising on the third day, testifying 
of ultimately everything that he said about himself. Blessing by the Spirit of God, the church that would meet at 120 strong in the upper room and that would be empowered to take the message of the cross and of the resurrection to the world that they might believe, might receive. It's a great picture and it's a necessary thing to say because Jesus, as he is talking to them, coming back to Matthew, says that the blasphemy, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Wait a minute. How can it be a blasphemy and it's forgiven, but there's another blasphemy and it can't be forgiven? Because one would be indicative of the things that we have thought about God, the things that we have said about God, the things that we have disobeyed God over in denying our heart's conviction on what was right or wrong. Missing. I will be able to accept that. But if ultimately, in whatever you've done, whatever you've spoken, however you have behaved, you deny the work of God to have a radical transformation in your life, there is nothing that can be done for you. The transformation is a decision that a person makes to be born again, which is what Nicodemus needed to hear. And the transformation is so radical in what it does to us, we are not the same person as once we were. We're not the same person. We're a spiritually renewed individual. We come packaged similarly, but within us there's something that's so uniquely different, it becomes impossible for a person not to believe that we are serving a risen Savior. He's in the world today. He walks with us. Actually, he's walking through us, testifying of himself, certifying himself through us and what we do. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. Mr. Rich Man, there's no time left for you. Your tenure is over. The decision that you needed to make because the Spirit of God was actually touching your heart to behave differently towards Lazarus, it's over. Your petitions, your appeals, they are dismissed and you've retained your sin. I am here, and I am greater than Moses and the prophets. But for one who, like the rich man, had the ability with conscience to know what he should have done, and that was to find himself accepting the terms of God, it's too late. You can't cry out to Abraham. He saw the evidence of one whom he would have known. If he was able to say Abraham, he knew the scriptures. He knew in his heart the history of what Abraham ultimately was as a friend of God, as literally one who would mediate throughout most of his life the transactions that God would make through him.
in touching people and influencing them. He was endowed by the Spirit of God. It will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Pardon me. I would love to. Pardon me, Lord. I want to. Pardon me, Lord. Why are you saying that? I don't know what else to say. How about forgive me, Lord, so that I can have your pardon of me, Lord? God would say, I did on the cross an utterance in which my son made the word that I needed to hear, but I haven't heard that from you yet. And it's interesting because in order to have the pardon given from the supreme judiciary, the one who sits on the bench, who has made that provision, an executive order to be written out, it was written. It indicates in the scriptures that the writ of offenses was ultimately satisfied and a charge that condemned all of us, and that God, by reason of his son, Jesus, rendered it no longer the treatise of indictment, but the document of liberty, freed by my son. Pardoned, stamped, welcome into the eternal, to be with me forever. Forgiveness. Pharisees, get this message. You know me. Your sons must know me. They are effectually casting out satanic demons by virtue of me. Not just by an incantation, not by just a hope, not by scholastics. They know me. Your sons. We are sons and daughters of a generation right now in which the world knows the Lord by what they know of us. And we're the ones that are able to grant a hopeful outcome to an unsure and unfavorable time right now, globally. This doesn't have to be the end, but for now, there's the licking of wounds. There's the groaning for a change that we all want to see, but ultimately the Lord wants to change us first. The church is asleep. Wake up. The church has an opportunity to have a harvest. White for the harvest, the Lord would declare. The world has an opportunity to turn from its wicked ways. If we're able to say without apology, time is short and you don't know how much time you have. But be assured, if you're not forgiven, you cannot be pardoned. God has indicated you are forgiven, but you need to understand it came from the mouth of Jesus. And therefore, you must believe whom Jesus is for what he said to be appreciated. For it is in his name and through that utterance that the Father has suspended the judgment. And the judgment waits 
that forgiveness anchored in Jesus renders the pardon. And the pardon is truly, remarkably freedom. You don't have to pay what you cannot pay for. And there's nothing you can do in good works to satisfy the outcome. It's only in trusting in a good God, a loving Savior. And so that's the message today. Thursday, to cross the great divide. Don't be divided as those who at times struggle with issues. Don't be divided in your homes. Don't be divided in where we need to serve the Lord to the fullness of the talents and gifts that we have. You're breathing, and you're breathing because of the Spirit of God, the Ruach, the Numa, and the certainty that you will breathe anew in heaven. It's really important to understand that. Pardon me. Thank you for asking. It has been done because your Lord has forgiven you on my behalf. On his behalf, I've forgiven you. The Spirit continues to desire to bear testimony of that being something no man ever needs to doubt, ever.